Hello, and welcome to Expert Insights with RAND Europe. In our podcast today, we are discussing a recently released report on the future uses of space, which explores how we are starting to access and use space in a variety of different ways. It looks ahead to all the potential uses of space out to the year 2050 and what implications this will have for the UK space sector. I'm Kat McShane from RAND Europe, and with me are two of the authors on the study, James Black and Lynn Slapakova, who will be giving their thoughts and insights on the main findings and the study. Before we start, could you briefly introduce yourselves and your roles, starting with you, Lynn? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Lynn Slapakova. I'm a senior analyst at RAND Europe. I work in the defense and security team, predominantly in the field of uh, military personnel and the armed forces community, but I've done a lot of research on emerging technologies and uh, futures in foresight. Hi everyone, I'm James Black. I'm a research leader in the defense and security team with Lynn. I also wear a second hat as European lead of something called the RAND Space Enterprise Initiative, or RSEI, which is a hub for all of RAND space-related research, analysis, and gaming. Thanks both. Now, The study states that recent years have witnessed major changes in how humans are using space. So the first thing I want to know is, is why is that happening? Why are we hearing so much more about space activities now than, say, 10 years ago? Um, Or at least that's how it appears um, from a non-expert point of view. If, um, If I could put that to you first, James. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's worth saying that space has always been a big part of our lives, at least in our lifetimes. So if you go back to the space race and the Cold War and the Apollo missions and all these sorts of things, um, those were very exciting from a scientific perspective and a discovery perspective. And they obviously inspired a lot of not only generations of scientists, but pop culture and all sorts of other things. But they also drove lots of deeper changes in the way society works nowadays and, and the way the economy works. So we're all now increasingly reliant on our mobile phones. We're reliant on GPS to find out where we're going. Um, And this is true also for businesses, for supply chains. And so space affects us in lots of ways we might not understand. If you go about your average daily life, every time you're making a a credit card payment, every time you're calling up um, a delivery service on your app, all these sorts of things are directly dependent on space, not to mention, of course, the satellite TV that you might be watching in the evening. So that's always been true, but that's intensifying now and looking to the future. And the big driver of that ultimately is falling costs and difficulty of getting things into space. So it's, of course, very difficult to escape the Earth's gravity and space is a very harsh environment in which to operate. But nonetheless, it is getting easier. And a big driver there has been the commercialization of space activities. So where things used to primarily be about governments or militaries, would work on big, expensive rocket programs and relatively few actors who could access space. Nowadays, that's becoming commercialized. We're seeing companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin who are offering access to space much, much cheaper as a result of a bunch of technological advances, um, but most notably the advent of reusable rockets. So these are rockets that you don't just spend a lot of money and effort building and then get to use once, which is obviously very expensive, but rather things that you can recover, refurbish and reuse and therefore drive down the cost. And as soon as you drive down the cost of getting to space, a whole load of different activities in space suddenly become commercially and economically viable. And so you start to see this kind of ecosystem of new services that's popping up. So there's a whole load of innovation going on and space is becoming much more congested, much more contested, and also much more competitive. 
So does this apply to the UK as well? The report focuses on the implications for the UK sector. Do we even have one? How is this relevant to the UK? So the UK has a long-standing interest in space, um, and it does have some areas of real niche strength already. So people might not necessarily think of the UK um, as a major space player in the way that, say, the US or Russia historically were, and, and China now is. But it is, it is, you know, up there as one of the kind of next tier of, of medium-sized actors, um, along with people like France and, and Germany and others. It hasn't invested as much in the sector as some of those other countries, but it does have some real kind of areas of, of strength. Um, examples on, say, the military side are it's got something called Skynet, which despite the um, the name which conjures, conjures images of a Terminator movie, is, is just a constellation of um, communication satellites, which are very high quality, and that's on the kind of fifth or sixth generation of satellites there. And then on the industrial side, again, UK has a lot of strengths and things like small satellites, for example. Um, so designing the kind of miniaturized satellites that are increasingly important in this sector, um, and which have all sorts of interesting applications. So it does have a good basis as a lot of, you know, academic research strengths and strong universities. And it's been actively involved in, in um, multinational initiatives for things like the European Space Agency, of which it's a member. Um, but there's been obviously an increasing ambition, I think, in the last two or three years. So there was a decision to create the, a national space strategy for the UK, which was something that it really hadn't had before. So to try and bring a bit more coherence and vision and ambition to what the UK government was doing in terms of supporting the space sector, both for its own activities as a kind of customer for space. So, you know, launching its own satellites, using its own space um, services, but also using the government's levers as a regulator and as someone that can support industry and support academia and work with other partners in other nations. And so that's really where RAND was, was brought in to try and take that long term view and look out to 2050 and really ask, what might the space environment look like in 2050? What might be the different uh, actors who are involved in that? Might What might be the different applications and use cases for space services at that point? And really try and stretch the government's thinking a bit. Because it's very easy to just focus on you know, what exists now or what exists in the past. But if we look at the rate of growth in space activities and the rate of growth in the space economy, we really can't assume that where things will be in 2030 will look much like they do now, let alone 2040 or 2050. Okay, James, thank you. That was a really helpful backdrop and a good point to turn to Lynn now. So we've got that sort of setting and that what you were looking out to 2050 and the potential future uses of space. And I know the study team identified around 200 potential uses for space. So I was wondering, I know it's probably going to be quite hard, if you could sort of boil down to sort of a few of the main trends or, or findings, if there were some main sort of themes in the findings of what we could expect to see developing in space. And then perhaps if there's things that you found particularly surprising or interesting about these new space activities. Yeah, absolutely. I think that so the first overarching finding, I think, for us was, as you say, that the sheer breadth and diversity of potential uses of space out to 2050. Um, as you say, we identify approximately, I think, 200, and they also stretched across 15 different sectors um, from defense and security to telecommunications, but also um, sectors like agriculture, um, 
climate and the environment, um, but also culture and entertainment. So there's there's really quite a lot of diversity in how space might be used in the future. So that was, I think, the first kind of overarching finding is we we found quite a lot of things. And I think that that breadth and diversity was greater than than we initially expected. But in terms of some of the more cross-cutting trends that we uh, started identifying maybe in these use cases and also looking at um, kind of the more more cross-cutting trends in, in, in the future space economy. I think that the first one is that, as James said, um, the future space economy is likely to be very multi-stakeholder in nature. So you will see an increasing number, but also diversity of actors and stakeholders being engaged in space activity, but also benefiting from space. And all of these actors will have different interests and capabilities for using space in the future. And hence also the, the value proposition that, that space poses to these um, to these stakeholders will likely increase, but also change um, out to 2050. So the space economy from that point of view, from the stakeholder and user point of view, will look very different in, in the future. The second trend is that just given the increasing reliance of the terrestrial economy on space-enabled services, and as just mentioned, that's you know everything from Earth observation to satellite-enabled communications. Those kinds of services are likely to be used by you know different sectors of the terrestrial economy, and hence the space economy and our own economy will be increasingly intertwined and, and integrated. And that integration is is also likely to to be even stronger in the future. So that's kind of the, the second trend that we've seen. And the last trend to mention is that within space itself, the space markets are also likely to have various linkages. And that's, I think, particularly the the kind of exciting part that we've seen is thinking about the different ways that different uses of space could converge to produce really potentially groundbreaking paradigm shifts in how space is used in the future. So to give an example, um, you know, if you think about different developments in how people get to space and then use space-based um, space-based materials, but also how they transport themselves through space. All of these different developments might be incremental in nature on their own, but then when they converge, they produce potentially really, really interesting shifts in how we use space overall. So that's kind of the, the final trend is that convergence in, in different uses of space um, on their own. The final thing to mention is that um, obviously um, developments in what we call the upstream space economy are going to be really important as well. So thinking about how we send satellites to space and, and different spacecraft to space, how that will change um, is also going to produce a lot of developments and changes in how we use space itself. And um, here, you know, we talk in the report a lot about new and emerging technologies, but also the development of new concepts uh, for space flight and how that will drive how the different uses of space will evolve. So that's kind of the final interesting trend that we engage with in the report. That's really interesting. So there's lots of different things all happening at the same time. So you can imagine a really sort of fast turnaround, a really fast innovative space in space. So is there anything that people at home would be sort of, wow, I never realized that they would be doing this in space or that there's a potential for this? Because I know there were lots of very interesting things that space could be used for that were sort of mentioned in the report. Yeah, so I think I think that there was many potentially surprising use cases that we found. And I think just there's many that we thought, you know, sound potentially quite incremental in nature. 
but relate to, again, quite high impact shifts, I guess, in the space economy. And I think even starting from things that don't sound particularly exciting, like um, space-based constructions or, or repair and engineering activities, in that sector, you see things like on-orbit safety satellite servicing, um, but then also using 3D printing to construct something in space. And, um, you know, that can range from everything like pieces of a satellite to actually lunar or Martian bases, which will then enable people to potentially, you know, use space in a very different way. So I think that there's there's lots of potentially um, interesting things there. I'll let James jump in. Yeah, I think it, it really is a, a wide variety. And I mean, our report picks up everything from, you know, the impacts on the agricultural sector, to the financial sector, to transport, and, and so on. But I think, as, as Lynn has rightly said, it's often the convergence of um, multiple use cases that becomes potentially the most kind of game-changing. So you could look at, for example, the way some nations are looking to asteroid mining. So sending probes out, to recovering you know, rocks and lumps of ice floating around relatively close to the Earth and space. And obviously everything in space is very far away, but relatively close. And then actually stripping those for the, the resources, which might potentially be worth you know, billions or trillions of pounds or dollars or euros. And then making use of those resources either bringing them back to Earth for certain purposes, for manufacturing and so on, or actually starting to use them in space and then starting to mine helium, for example, from the moon, turn that into hydrogen and, and oxygen and fuel and, and so on. You can suddenly start to see this kind of burgeoning little ecosystem where you've got resources being extracted in space, you've got some sort of manufacturing activities going on in space, you've got a whole load of satellites, a whole load of spacecraft moving things around, making that work. And then a whole load of support services that are then needed for those things. So you then need repairs, you then need refueling, you need security, you need tracking and surveillance and all these other things. So, so there's those kind of big ambitious visions. And if you listen to people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, who, who run two of the world's largest space companies, in addition to their terrestrial um, kind of billionaire activities, you know, they talk about one day trying to move all sorts of activity off the planet to move a lot of the polluting activities and the things that generate greenhouse gas emissions and all the heavy industry, move that into space eventually, and also try and start, you know, settling other planets like Mars. And, and that starts to sound very big and, and you know, sci-fi. But actually, there's also surprising stuff that's much smaller and more kind of low key, but still, you know, still rather remarkable. So we also picked up things like the fact there are companies out there who are looking to brew beer in space or you know grow, grow coffee in space and some of that is just for the novelty but you can start to see actually certain manufacturing processes that are easier in a low gravity environment than they are on earth for various reasons so there's a whole wide variety out there and i think i think this is really the point this is just that we don't know exactly what the future is going to look like and no, nobody does but as lynn was was saying earlier it starts to look a lot more like just the terrestrial economy so the space economy begins to become more and more diverse more and more like the whole kind of wide range of things that happen on Earth. That's really helpful and really interesting. Thanks both. And needing to sort of round up what we our discussion time now. So I was thinking, could you quite briefly go into what the findings of the study might mean for the UK government? How are they going to use this information? And if you could say, you know, what's next for RAND in the sector? Are you going to be doing more work on space? Which it sounds like it, considering you're running the space enterprise section of it. 
Yeah, I hope so. I think it means I'm not doing my job very well <laughs> if we're not. Um, I mean, to, to answer your first question, so our work kind of fed directly into the UK Space Agency while it was drafting the National Space Strategy. Um, that's now come out. And so UK government is really in the phase of implementing that for the next you know, five, 10 years. I think our, our findings where they kind of hit into that was really emphasizing the need for future-proofing of policy. Which is really difficult because, you know, governments, particularly, you know, democratic systems such as the UK, they obviously think in relatively short term electoral cycles. It's, it can be quite hard to really think long term. And especially with an area like space, you know, it, it can seem like, why, why am I spending my money on this when there are other things, you know, literally closer to home down on Earth that, that we could be focusing on? But space has got this huge threats, huge risks, but also huge benefits. Um, and so it's an area that government really needs to pay attention to. Um, and as our report really found, it's it's changing so quickly that government really needs to try and get ahead of the curve as best it can and try and anticipate some of the opportunities and challenges in this domain rather than just reacting to them five or 10 or 15 years down the line. And you're starting to see that, you know, UK government is thinking and talking openly about things that perhaps five, 10 years ago might have seemed kind of science fiction. So it's talking about doing space-based, you know, power generation where we have huge you know, solar panels out in space that generate power that we then beam down to Earth. Think conversations like that, you know, whether they go anywhere on a particular program, but they're, they're conversations that we weren't having 10, 15 years ago. And it really just reflects the pace of change and also the growing ambition from the UK. So I think that was the, the first key finding was really just trying to be more future-proof, be more future-aware. I think the second bit was really pushing for more kind of cross-government cooperation so this is something the UK government's been taking action on, not because of the findings of our report, I should stress that was happening already before our report, but certainly we've, we've fed into that kind of broad theme. So they've set up a National Space Council, which is a subcommittee of the UK cabinet. They've got all sorts of cooperation going on between the UK Space Agency, which is a civil agency, between the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which does a lot of space policy, and then with the UK Ministry of Defence and a new Space Command, which obviously do things on the military side. That's a big area of emphasis in our report, and again, a big focus for government. And then the other the other kind of key areas really coming from our analysis were around working better with, with industry, so in this case, of the UK industry. So having a proper industrial strategy for the space sector, which is something that's kind of been worked up, figuring out how to make the use of the government's investments, whether in R&D or in acquiring and operating its own satellites to drive change in the industry and the supply chain working out how to regulate this new environment. You know, how do we regulate space launches from the UK? And the UK is hoping to have the first such launch later this year in 2022, which will be the first launch from kind of continental Europe. Um, it's also about developing the people and the skills to make all this work, because there's no good having an industry or, or, or perfect regulation if you don't have the people and skills ultimately to make it work. And this is an area where growing the skills is a real real challenge, but also a priority. So we're seeing a kind of National Space Academy being set up, for example. And then the other real area of emphasis from, from our research was um, around working with allies and partners. So this is not something that, you know, the UK or, or really any country can do alone. Space is a big place. Getting there, as I said, is getting cheaper, but it's still complicated. And really making the most of the best science and technology requires collaboration across borders share ideas, drive down costs, share risk, these sorts of things. So the UK is also working up its kind of international partnerships with the US, with Europe, with Australia, with Japan, and a whole load of other places. And there's lots of kind of exciting programs going on there. 
And and so a final area then really where the UK um, is quite active and which was another final point of emphasis from our findings was the need to kind of preemptively and proactively shape global governance of space. So as it does become more congested and contested and competitive, it's really important that we we don't let it turn into this kind of unregulated Wild West um, and we don't end up with unanticipated consequences and, and threats and risks from this explosion of activity in, in that domain. So the UK has been pushing hard um, in the United Nations. It's taking a leading role um, defining uh, something called norms of responsible behaviour. And a good example, perhaps, that people can understand would be the issue of debris. You know, if I'm generating lots of debris in space because I'm leaving old satellites up there or rocket parts or whatever, that's not just affecting me, that's affecting everybody who uses space because there's all of that debris is flying around, potentially endangering other people's satellites or spacecraft or even you know humans on the International Space Station and, and other places in the future. So th there's a lot of work going on for the United Nations, for example, to try and make space safer, more secure and more sustainable as an environment. And the UK has been a, a big component on that. So I guess to, to close out on what RAN, RAN's doing, you know, we're feeding into all of that with research and analysis. We've been doing a lot of work on the impact of emerging technology. We've been looking at the UK space science base and its strengths and weaknesses. We've been looking at space governance and supporting some of the, the initiatives through places like Wilson Park and the Foreign Office, um, promoting those, those kind of norms of responsible behaviour that I, I just mentioned. And then we've also been thinking about how space connects to other domains. So things like cyber, you know, what's the cybersecurity for satellites, for example, or other policy areas like climate. So how does space help us deal with climate change and environmental change down on Earth? So really, you know, we continue to do all those sorts of things for the UK. And obviously we're, we're working for other governments around the world, as well as with the third sector and, and others to really just try and increase awareness of space, increase awareness of all the, the opportunities and challenges, and then try and find ways of, you know, tackling all of those issues um, in as robust and evidence-based way as, as we can. Thank you. This is such an interesting and exciting area. So I look forward to seeing what comes up next for RAND in this area. That's all we have time for in this session. So thank you for listening and thank you to our podcast participants, James and Lynn, for joining us on Expert Insights with RAND Europe. The study discussed today was the future uses of space out of 2050, emerging threats and opportunities for the UK national space strategy. The study was funded by the UK Space Agency. If you're interested in finding out more about this research, please visit our website at randeurope.org. RAND Europe is a non-profit, non-partisan research organization that helps to improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.